Well, good evening. What a joy it is to be with you guys, bringing God's word to y'all. And tonight we'll be finishing, or not finishing, continuing on with our series with Second Peter. We'll be looking at Second Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. You'll find that on page 1019 of your pew Bible there. Second um, Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. And here Peter is continuing on with his description of the false teachers that had been assailing the church there. And now we actually get into some of the content of what they are teaching. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word found in 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Now these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, that is the false teachers, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it we find life and light. Lord, we do pray that your spirit would come now and um, shine its light in our hearts. Lord, would you be with me uh, as I seek to faithfully proclaim the word that you have for us tonight? Would you be with our, in our hearts, Lord? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, the gospel and your word preached this evening. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for 165 years, M. Nodler and Company in New York City was one of the premier art galleries in the country. And then, sadly, in 2011, it closed its doors for good. Now, the reason, though, for closing its door, it wasn't due for, to the market crash three years prior. It wasn't due to the soaring real estate prices of New York. Rather, the reason that they closed their doors was much for a much more common reason. It was simply good old-fashioned fraud, which ruined M. Nodler and company. See, in 2011, they had sold a uh, Jackson Pollock painting for $17 million, and that the buyer had questions about its authenticity, which led to a report, which led to an investigation, which led to over 40 paintings which they had sold from 1996 to 2011 for a grand total of $80 million being reported as frauds. In fact, this large lump sum, these quote-unquote masterpieces, were all made by a then 73-year-old man in his queen's garage. See, art for and art forgery is a big business, $80 million. And that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of all the high-class, white-collar crimes of art fraud in the world. And it takes time and energy looking at thousands and thousands and thousands of originals in order to tell one, thing, one from another. It takes studying how paint cracks over time. It takes studying how one brush from 1850 would make, create a stroke versus a brush in 2002. All the while, it takes learning what the truth is in order to combat the fraud. 
And you see, and you know as well as I do, that fraud doesn't just affect art world, the art world. It doesn't just affect the 1% who can pay $17 million for a painting. Right? For as long as civilization has been around, wherever goods and services are offered, there fraud can be found. And in tonight, as Peter has been telling us over and over again, fraud is found in the people of God as well. Fraud is found in the people of God as well. And so this passage tonight from Peter brings before us two different but really related questions. Two different but related questions. The first is, what does it mean to be free? What is the fraudulent offer of freedom? What is the true offer of freedom? And second, how can someone really have assurance of salvation? What is the fraudulent offer of assurance and what is the true offer of assurance? And while these seem to be two independent concerns, two independent questions, you'll see that they actually tie together such that how we understand the first question, I believe, will affect how we answer the second question. So we'll seek to look into these two questions tonight. First is, what is real freedom? And then second, what is real assurance? So as I said, Peter is continuing his description of the false prophets that have been plaguing his church context, wherever he's writing this letter from. And he's, now he's actually diving into some of the content of their teaching, some of the content of what they are uh, bringing before the people of God. And he starts this section using two images that really show how worthless their teachings are. First, he says they're waterless springs. Right? They're, it's like a, a, a pit in a desert right? that you're hoping will give you fresh water, and yet when you take a sip, all it leaves is ash and dust in your mouth. And second, they're not only waterless springs, but they're clouds that bring no rain. So these false teachers are coming in, offering the clear, cool relief of rain by the gospel, and yet they themselves are pushed away from, by the wind. They dissipate before they can offer any true refreshment. This, these are the teachers that the church has been dealing with, waterless springs and clouds who bring no rain. And Peter tells us how they are waterless springs, how they are clouds which look to be bringing rain, but end up being nothing. That is, they speak boasts of loud folly. He says there in uh, verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly. And really what that, that language is talking about is they use loud, pompous, highfalutin language to get their arguments across. Right? They use language that seems intelligent. They bring sophisticated and intricate arguments, and through caveat and nuance and nuance and nuance, they're able to say, see, all these bad things that we're talking about, they're really not all that bad. Right? They were perhaps some of the best trained orators their time, being able to finagle their way out of any argument, much like a lawyer today. Right? able to, with all the skill and acumen that a uh, contorted, corrupted lawyer can, bring before the, the courts and get anyone out of prison. So these so-called teachers were using high rhetorical flair to bring before 
these offers of freedom. What they were offering was this pure offer of absolute libertinism. Doesn't matter what you want, you can sin, you can do all you want, and it's all in the name of freedom. There, Peter, Peter tells us in verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. And it seems, whether intentionally or not, whether they were intentionally pulling from Paul or just hopping on his line of argument, they've latched on to some form of either Galatians 3 or Galatians 5, where Paul tells us that for freedom Christ has set, him, set us free, and they've corrupted it to their own liking. They've corrupted it so much so that through a thousand nuances, they have taught that there is no place for the law. That true freedom is found in fulfilling every desire that we have. True freedom is found in giving over to all the sensual passions that we have in our hearts. And whether it be through an oversimplification of grace, or as seems to be the case here, a denial of final judgment, as these teachers we will see later seem to be doing, this trap, this offer of quote-unquote true freedom has come before the church time and time again. It's in our churches today. It's in even our own hearts. Right? All of us want to be free. Everyone wants to be free. But since the Garden of Eden, we have twisted that meaning of freedom into basically meaning doing whatever we desire, doing whatever our hearts want to do, whatever we do with that, that must be true freedom. Now, of course, in Western democracy, in the, since 1700s, we've gotten a little more civilized with it. It's not just do whatever you want anymore, right? But instead, it's as long as you're not hurting anybody, you can do whatever you want. And yet we know that that itself is just some sort of rhetorical flair because whenever we act outside of God's law, we are hurting both ourselves and others. But the root of our sin, whether it be in the garden or whether it be today, is thinking that we want to be truly free. We want to be, as promised by the serpent, like God. And that's the freedom, this fraudulent freedom that these teachers were offering to God's people. You can do whatever you want. doesn't matter. You are free. And yet, Scripture tells us, along with the great Bob Dylan, that everyone serves something or someone. And the constant refrain of Scripture is that there is only one master who will ever truly set us free. As Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But Jesus doesn't just give us the freedom, the liberty to do all that we want, to answer all the desires of our heart, but rather he gives us the freedom to do as he has commanded us to. In the last 10, 15 years, there's been a, a huge resurgence of the phrase Christian liberty. Um, perhaps if you've been on social media, there's a really terrible place called Reform Pub that's just the worst, but they, people are always talking about Christian freedom, 
Christian liberty, what it means to have Christian liberty. And often what it seems to be, and I've fallen prey to this in my own heart as well, is this way that we can say, I'm just going to do whatever I want. I've got Christian liberty, so I'm going to have four beers tonight. I've got Christian liberty, so I really don't have to go to church this Sunday. It's all right. I've got Christian liberty, so I can, I can fudge a little on my taxes because God's my true king. And yet, as the Westminster Confession of Faith tell us, tells us that those who on the pretext of Christian liberty practice any sin or cherish any evil desire, they destroy the purpose of Christian liberty. The true purpose is that having been delivered out of the hand of our enemies, we may serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So the freedom that Christ brings, the liberty that Christ brings, isn't an allowance for us to do all that we have wanted to do, knowing we'll be forgiven at the end. But rather, true Christian liberty and freedom is being able to pursue holiness and righteousness. Being able to pursue without fear all the things that God has commanded us to do. Even Peter himself in the book before, 1 Peter 2.16 will tell us, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So don't claim to be free only to get away with all the things you want but rather use your freedom to live as servants of God. We are free to be servants of God. Or even Paul in that, that verse that these uh, teachers may have been twisting, for freedom Christ has set us free, will go on to say, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The freedom that we have is now to serve God as we were created to, without threat of judgment, without threat of divine rebuke. See, these false teachers offered, as Richard Bauckham says, freedom from any sort of divine judgment. There's nothing waiting for you on the other side. All that you do is just going to be washed away in grace. But the freedom that they offered only led to a whole new type of slavery. They were freed from one sin, only to be taken captive by seven more. So this freedom that we see in Scripture, the true freedom offered in Christ, is a freedom from sin, a freedom from the slavery and death of sin. But it's also a freedom for something. It's a freedom for holiness and righteousness before the Lord all the days of our life. And really, if we are piggybacking off of Paul from Ephesians 1, it is the freedom to be imitators of God. The freedom to be an imitator of God. And that's a radical, radical statement for someone like Paul, a good Jew knowing his Old Testament backwards and forwards, to say that we created and fallen man could be imitators of God, to be like God. That's the freedom that Christ brings us. Not the freedom to submit to the lower base desires of life, but the freedom to 
be imitators of the one true, holy, loving, merciful God. That's the true freedom that Christ offers. Yet, it brings us to a second question, though, too. Our second question of the evening. How can someone have real assurance? Does saving faith really persevere until the end? And this question is raised, perhaps it even caught your eye, in verses 20 through 22, where Peter says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and be overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. And on first glance, it seems to be that Peter is saying, hey, once you're saved, if you go back, once you lose that salvation, it's over for you. In fact, the author of Hebrews will say something similar. And perhaps you have read passages like these, these warning passages in 2 Peter and Hebrews and James and others, wondering, can someone who has been saved truly lose their salvation? Many theologians throughout history, particularly Roman Catholic or Arminian theologians, will read these three verses and others and say, ah, see, the proof we need. There are people who at once were truly saved, truly regenerate, and yet they can lose their salvation. And what I hope to do in answering this question for you is to give you guys a framework to be able to answer these questions as you read the Bible, as you read through the word of God, because it is an important question. Is, do we have assurance that we will persevere to the end? As a Reformation scholar said, the, the, the principle which drove the Reformation, right, the principle which drove Martin Luther and John Calvin was to bring assurance to their people, to bring assurance to the hearts of God's people. So there are two ways we can answer this question. Can we have real assurance? And the first would be a polemical way, so a way to answer the objections, to answer the critics who say we can. And then the second would be a more doctrinal, a more positive way to approach the answer. So we'll kind of work through those in the remaining time of the polemical answering the critics, those who say we can truly lose our salvation and then build a doctrinal, a positive approach to the answer of real assurance. And for the polemical, first off, a good principle of Christian life is to never build your theology on just one or two proof texts. Right? It is never a good idea. You know, we don't sit on two-legged stools. We don't, like, unless you're really talented, you don't ride a one-legged bicycle. I guess it's called a unicycle. They have words for those things. Um, but instead, we build from the whole witness of Scripture. Right? We build from the whole witness of Scripture. And a number of texts all throughout the Bible point to the perseverance of the saints, point to the fact that we will, all those who are truly saved, will bear out to the end. Again, 1 Peter, the first letter he wrote, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Here, Peter seems to be saying that, that in that one-time event, that historical event, all was done for God's people. All was paid for. All 
was accomplished and all that's left is for the Spirit to apply it. Or John 10, 28, perhaps the most beautiful of all assurance passages in the whole Bible. And Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch us out of Jesus' hands. That's a pretty powerful promise that no one, nothing will ever snatch God's people out of his hand. So the, proof to the, 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 the overwhelming message of Scripture seems to be that God alone will keep us till the end. And we could turn to other passages that point to that as well. And the, the last piece of a polemical approach and answering the objections approach is to say that the language used here and elsewhere, also in Hebrews, all throughout the warning passage of Hebrews, they never explicitly say that these were the truly converted. Rather, what seems to be the case is that whether it's Second Peter or Hebrews, all of the authors are using what Old Testament scholar Jonathan Gibson calls phenomena, the phenomenological language. Try saying that five times fast. Phenomenological language, meaning that it's the appearance of things. It's how we see them. It's how they play out before us. But it's not necessarily in the true nature of things. And yet even look at the way the proverb is used. Right? The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. What this proverb seems to be showing is that those who turn away, those who become entangled in the snares of the devil, never had that new nature to begin with. They were always dogs. They were always pigs. They were never new creation. So really we are left with two options to answer our Arminian brethren and their objections. Either Scripture contradicts itself, and we really can lose our salvation, or we demand that these texts don't reveal the true, elect, chosen members of God's family, but rather only those who were external members of God's covenant, external members of God's flock. So that's a polemical way that we could approach that, that objection. But now let's go to the doctrinal, the, the fun stuff, the positive way that we could approach this, this question of real assurance. And when we start with a doctrinal stance, when we start building a theology of assurance, we always start with the foundation, as we saw in John 10, 28, in 1 Peter 3, 18, in Romans 8, start with the foundation that part and parcel of the promise of salvation is that God will see it through to the end. The same promise that says your sins are forgiven carries with it the promise that you will be brought through to the end. As Herman Bovink, the great Dutch theologian, said, the question about assurance and perseverance is whether God upholds, continues, and completes the work of grace he has begun, or whether he sometimes permits it to be totally ruined by the power of sin. Perseverance is not an activity of the human perseverance, but a gift from God. 
So what he's saying, the, the, the start of perseverance is recognizing that it is nothing in ourselves that we do which somehow pushes us over the line, but rather it's God's hand guiding us all along the way, seeing us throughout. As he says, the question is, will God complete the work that he began in you? Will God complete the work that he began in you? We can also, building a positive vision, apply some covenantal language here, right? So we're Presbyterians, we love our covenant theology, and it helps us to approach passages such as this. And if you, if you will, just, I don't know if you have to turn the page on this one, in mine I have to, but in 2.1, 2 Peter 2.1, we see some similar language as being used here in 17 through 22, where Peter says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false, false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, and here's the important line, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So when we take that verse and these verses here, we can look at it and apply some covenantal categories. Right, so the covenant that God made with Abraham, the offer of grace, right, we can see three different people when we look at it from a covenantal perspective. We have non-believers, those outside the covenant. We have people who are only members of the visible covenant. And then we have the truly elect. We have these three categories of non-believers, members of the visible covenant, and then members of the invisible covenant, the elect, or non-Christians, covenant breakers, and covenant keepers. See, there are those, using covenant theology, there are those members of the visible covenant of God, members of the local church, whether through profession or infant baptism, members of the church who have never had their hearts restored, who have never had their hearts restored. And they will, all of them, one day fall away, whether it's through showing themselves to be unrepentant false teachers, falling prey to such teachers, or even through apostasy. All those who have not had their hearts restored will one day fall away. And it is only those who, in union with Christ, by the power of the Spirit, it is only those who are covenant keepers, who show themselves to be true members of God's covenant people. Now you might be thinking, as sometimes heard when we talk about covenant language, am I just merely bringing another form of legalism? Is this just, hey, you get in the covenant and you try your hardest, otherwise you're going to fall out. No, we always have to remember that for all of God's people, it is the Spirit who walks with us. It is the Spirit who empowers us, who unites us to Christ. And all the things that we do are merely an overflow of God's gift to us in Christ. As Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. To, to do and to will, to, to work and to will according to God's good pleasure, but knowing that it is a God at work among you. So we see this twofold side work out your salvation with fear and trembling, yet knowing that God's at work 
amongst you, that God is the one providing the will and the energy to work. And you might be, another thought might be, man, this is not helping my assurance at all because I have no idea if I'm doing what God wants me to do. But here's the thing, we're under the new covenant. We are under the covenant of grace, the covenant of freedom. And as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, some of the best questions you can ask yourself pertaining to your assurance are, do you see your sin? And in seeing your sin, do you repent? Do you know you're a sinner? Do you know in your heart and your mind that the only way out of all this mess that you've created is through the blood of Christ? And thirdly, do you long to be holy? Do you know you're a sinner? Do you know that the only hope you have is in Christ? And do you long to be holy? Well, Christian, if you say yes to those questions, you can be assured that the gospel is at work in you. There will always be sins that cling to our hearts. And yet the life of repentance, which rests upon Christ and pursues holiness, is one that has to have been touched by the gospel. You can be sure that Christ has saved you. However, there's a final point to this as well. If we say, if we've answered what true freedom is, and if we've answered that we can have true assurance, we also must note then that these are still real warnings. These are not just hypothetical situations that Peter, or in, in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, is bringing before us. These are not warnings that you should approach saying, oh, I'm elect, so I'm good. I don't have to read these warnings. These are real warnings to help us along the way. Calvin, commenting on this, says, yes, as far as they could, the false teachers profaned and abrogated, so they broke the inviolable covenant of God, which had been ratified by the blood of Christ. The more earnest then ought we to be to advance humbly and carefully in the course of our calling. These warnings should strike a tenor of fear in our hearts. Knowing that should Christ leave us for a second, should one day we show ourselves to have never really believed in anything at all but our own, our own ability to come to church to sing some songs, never falling on Christ, if that were to happen, God forbid, what a terrible thing it would be to fall in the hands of a living God upon whom you turned your back. That's the warning. Don't take this as just something that happens to other people. These are warnings for the people of God. If you turn away, if I turn away, it won't be because God failed us. It won't be because God failed you. But it's because you were never really regenerated from the start. And I'll end with one of the most 
piercing statements, one of my seminary professors said in a New Testament class once. I said, you want to know how you're elect? You want to know that salvation awaits you? You just never leave. You never leave. You never turn your back on the God who saved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this um, sobering passage, Lord, of um, the judgment that awaits those who turn their back on you. But we thank you for the true freedom that you give from sin, Lord, for salvation, for uh, freedom to serve you. Lord, we thank you that by your gospel you give us true assurance, Lord, in, in our hearts through our desire to be holy and our reliance upon Christ, that we can know for certain that you have saved us, that you will save us, and that you will carry us on through the end. Father, I pray that even as we go forth, knowing what a sensitive topic this is, that uh, any words that I spoke that, Lord, that only led to further doubt would be, um, would either lead people to a, a, a evaluation of their faith to become deeper in love with you, or Father, would be melted away in any untruth that I spoke, and that they would see their assurance, Lord, not in their actions, Lord, but on the one who hung on a tree for us, and that it is in his hands that we rest, and that nothing can take us from them. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.